a song that we could not sing without your help, I don't think, uh, Be Still My Soul. If you're unfamiliar with that song, I just encourage you to maybe make that an afternoon meditation. It'd be a wonderful song for you to revisit, to think, to find a favorite version of uh, on iTunes or wherever you listen and become familiar with that song. It will be a wonderful addition uh, to today's text. Uh, Let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Father, we come now to submit ourselves to your word. We come now to hear it preached, that we might understand it, and by understanding your word, come to understand you, and what you are like, and what it is like to walk in obedience with you, that we might be encouraged in ways of righteousness, that we might be encouraged in our convictions about what is true, and that, Father, you might use your word and by your spirit convict us of places where we have fallen short, in places where we can grow, blind spots in our own lives and our own obedience, uh, that we might grow in glorifying you this week. So we pray that you help us feel a godly sorrow, spiritual sorrow about any sin or falling short in our lives, and be encouraged this week uh, to turn, to grow, and to trust the gospel and to love obeying you with our whole lives. And we pray that that would be so now as we hear your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. When Mike Tyson was asked by a reporter whether he was worried about Evander Holyfield and his fight plan, Mike Tyson answered simply, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I've never actually physically been punched in the mouth personally in my life. I've been in various kinds of fights and car accidents, but I don't think I've ever been punched in the mouth. But maybe you can look back and remember the last time that you, as a Christian, were telling someone else about Christ, and maybe you've actually been punched in the mouth, or maybe you had the experience that uh, felt similar kind of pain. Maybe you felt a similar pain from someone else just dismissing Jesus as false or as fiction. Maybe you were called names. Maybe you were told to stay away from the family. Maybe you were told to be quiet at work. Maybe you were made fun of when you proclaimed, when you said that Jesus is God's Son, crucified for sinners, and raised from the dead. When that happened, how did you respond? How did you feel? And what was your response? What was, what was your plan, so to speak, when you got punched in the teeth? When you felt the pain of persecution, the pain of others rejecting Jesus Christ and the gospel in your mouth. Recently, I was standing, ironically enough, talking with someone in the foyer during the week. He brought clothes here for the church, and I just asked simply if she had any church that she was a part of. She quickly responded that she did not go to any church, and that she won't go to any church, and that she's not coming to this church. She could see where the invitation was going. It was small, it was little, but it did sting just to hear, to feel the rejection of Christ and the invitation not even yet offered. Well, here in Acts 4, the church is going to get punched in the mouth for the first time. In the fight between good and evil, and the fight between the gospel and the world, the church is going to feel the first taste, the first pain, the first blood will be drawn, so to speak, of persecution on this side of the Spirit coming and establishing the church. This is round one, if you will, of the fight 
the church will be in through the book of Acts that we continue in today until the Lord returns. What happened to them is an example of what's going to happen to us, what we should expect, and how they respond is an example of how we should respond in faithfulness as well. So here's our game plan for the fight. In, in simplicity, hostility will come. We'll see this next four. Number one, hostility will come. And two, God is sovereign. Hostility will come, God is sovereign. If we put those two things in understanding as we can, put those two things in practice as they did here in the early church. Hostility will come. Read again what Megan read for us, 4, 1 through 4. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. There was teaching outside of the temple. This lame man had just been healed. News about that lame man was spreading. But now we see the apostles are speaking to the people. They're teaching in front of the temple. And the captain of the temple, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They weren't even teaching about the lame man, per se. They were teaching the resurrection of the dead. And they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and a number of the men came to about 5,000. 5,000. Now look what Luke just did. Luke has just compared, in this short beginning of this Chapter 4, this second scene around this lame man from chapter 3, there are two groups of people. Those who heard the word and believed, and that number had grown to about 4,000. And then there are the priests, the captain, and the Sadducees who did not believe and they were annoyed, and it led to the arrest of the apostles. There are only two groups in the world. And we, we see these two groups shown throughout the book of Acts, chapter to chapter to chapter. There are those who hear the word and believe, those who hear the word and they reject. There were, as Jesus said in the book of Matthew, there are those who are goats, there are those who are sheep. There are those who are going to be annoyed, there are those who are going to believe the gospel. Not everyone is going to be as outright hostile as here in Acts 4 and in the chapters to come. But that is a division in the world, and you see it over and over in Acts. Some believed, some were mad and furious. Some believed, some ran Paul out of town. Some believed, others mocked them, Acts 17. Jesus told the apostles to expect this when they went out. This is not shocking. This is not news. We're in a boxing ring. You're going to get punched. That's what this is going to be like. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15, verse 18 through 27. John 15, 18 through 27. Book in the Gospels before Acts. John 15, see verse 18 through 27, where Jesus explicitly tells the apostles what they can expect when they begin this mission to witness about Jesus Christ. John 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my word, they will also keep yours. See that division between the two in the world. But all these things they will do on to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen, they saw the lame man, for example, in Acts 3. They, they saw the people risen, risen from the dead in the Gospels. They saw the healings. They saw Jesus walk on water. Jesus says, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they've seen and they hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Jesus is actually saying the Old Testament said those who come to proclaim Jesus will be hated without cause. But when the helper comes, now, Paul, now Jesus is talking about Acts. Jesus is talking about that time which Acts 4 is now in. When the Helper comes, the Spirit comes, who I will send to you from the Father. The Spirit of the truth proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning, you apostles. Well, that's exactly what is happening in Acts 3 and 4. The Helper, the Holy Spirit of God has come, and they are bearing witness by the power of the Spirit through miracles and signs and wonders and through the preaching of the Gospel. And as Jesus said, they're hating them. Don't be surprised. They hated me. They're going to hate you guys too. Notice in Acts, why is it that they were so annoyed? Go back to Acts chapter 4. Why were they so annoyed is it because there was a lame man that was healed? Yeah, that was an inconvenience for them, but they could not deny the historical fact, as they say in Acts 4. But they were annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They were teaching the resurrection from the dead. Teaching suggests that they have an authority, that they have a truth claim that others must bow to and bend to and recognize. And they were proclaiming that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Something supernatural, humanly impossible had happened to Jesus Christ. Teaching the miracle of the resurrection. And look what they're teaching as Peter goes on. He begins to teach that Jesus is the exclusive way. I mean, that's a word we don't like today in our culture. Anything that is exclusive. But look what Peter says. Acts chapter 4, continuing in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders, scribes, gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So we're still responding to the healing of the lame man at the beginning of Acts 3. So by what power and by what name did you do this? Now they already know. They've been saying Jesus' name over and over. They just want to hear it again. They just want them to be trapped. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, here's what Peter says. Here's his answer. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, 
let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, let everybody know that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Paul, excuse me here, Peter is saying the exact thing that got them put in arrest in the first place. You crucified him. He was raised from the dead. By him, by Jesus, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become the cornerstone. Look what he says in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There is no other way to be saved from the penalty of your sin and from eternal death and damnation which we deserve from God. There is no other way than by the name of Jesus. So they're teaching like they have the truth. They're proclaiming Jesus was raised from the dead. And they're suggesting that Jesus is the exclusive way to be saved from our sins. Authoritative claim about supernatural event and the exclusivity of the way to salvation. Three things that will annoy the fire out of our culture today. Authority, supernatural, exclusivity. Culture is going to be really annoyed by this today. I mean, we can expect this culturally. This week you may have seen what's been pinned, uh, until last night at least, on Elon Musk's Twitter account. If you follow it's been going on this week. Documentary by Matt Walsh of The Wire called What is a Woman uh, was published to be viewed for free for the first time on Twitter. It's been quite the debacle if you've been following. It went from being you know, held back and suppressed to Elon Musk actually pinning the video itself on his own feed and as of this morning viewed almost 160 million times. The title of the film, the title of the film was a very simple yet seemingly complicated question. The title of the film is simply, What is a Woman? You've seen this? What is a woman? 160 million views cost two people their jobs at Twitter this week. Friends, if, if we're debating in our culture what a woman is, what do you think is going to happen when we show up and say, I have a truth claim about a man raised from the dead and he's the exclusive way that every single person in the world can be saved. I mean, the culture that we're in is not welcoming. It's not warm to any kind of exclusive truth claims, especially those about spiritual things. Let me just encourage you, though, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, this is what we have to give to you. This is the center of why we're gathering. This is the center of what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus is God's Son. That He died on the cross to replace us and our sin, what we deserve. That He raised from the dead to fully pay for our sins. Having fully paid the debt of our sins. And that He now is alive. That He's ascended to be in heaven with God. 
that the only way to be saved, the only way to be forgiven and be made right before God is to believe and trust Jesus Christ died for you. We read in our building block this morning, Timothy mentions it, uh, Paul mentions it this way to Timothy. Remember this, there's one God. There's only one God. And there's only one, exclusively one mediator between God and man. The man Jesus Christ. That man who died for our sins and rose from the dead. That is what we call the gospel. That's the good news. There's no other way to be saved. We are not here as a church gathering thinking, wow, we are such amazing people. God is going to be so impressed with us. God is so glad that we have come to give him all the gifts of our righteousness in our lives. No, we come claiming the one exclusive, as we've been singing all morning, the one exclusive way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. The culture is not going to like that. And Jesus told us the world is not going to like that. This is one of the reasons when we baptize those who profess faith, we take some time and we ask some questions. We, we encourage people to consider the cost before they make a public declaration to follow Jesus Christ. As the crowds came around Jesus, you might think that Jesus was really excited to have huge crowds following him everywhere he went. That's the goal, right? To get as many people as possible to follow Jesus. And yet we see time and time again in the Gospels that when Jesus got huge crowds around him, he actually said things that intentionally pared down the crowds, that sifted through the crowds, that sifted through goats and sheep, if you will. One such example is Luke 14, 25 through 33, where Jesus encourages these large crowd who has gathered around him to consider whether or not they actually want to follow him. And great crowds accompanied him, Luke said. And he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus isn't teaching a, a principle of hate here. <coughs> Excuse me. He's teaching that if you are willing, unless you're willing to leave and and separate yourself from your family to attach yourself to Jesus, you can't be his disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, <clears throat> whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends the delegation and asks for terms of peace, like a smart man would do. <clears throat> so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You've got to think about it. You want to follow Jesus or not? It's going to cost you. The first sentence of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship, is so helpful. Cheap grace, he says, <coughs> is the deadly enemy of the church. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of the church. Grace, which actually costs you nothing in your life. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what he invited his followers to. 
Anyone who must come, wants to come after Christ must take up his cross daily. So what is the encouragement for Christians to keep on talking about Jesus? Even if Jesus has told us the world's going to hate us and it's going to be costly, it's going to be uncomfortable in the world that we should expect hostility. If they hated him, they're, they're going to hate us. If we go out and we preach about Jesus, we're going to get punched in the teeth. We're going to be told to be quiet. We're not going to be welcome at family dinners anymore. There are many, many joys, many rewards in Christ. The, the inheritance that we have in Christ and in heaven is incomparable. It is incomprehensible in relation to the pains that we suffer for Christ on this earth. Heaven and God's presence is the joy and the conclusion that we wait for that does not compare with any earthly pain. But see how this morning, it is the sovereignty of God which is the foundation of the church's response to their first taste of persecution. The sovereignty of God is the foundation to the first taste of persecution in the church. You can expect hostility, but no church as you look through church history, church, as you look through Acts Church, know God is sovereign. And let that work itself out practically as you respond to persecution. The sovereignty of God encourages Christians in persecution. See how when they are persecuted, it is the first words out of their mouth back to God. When they're persecuted, see the first words out of their mouth back to God in prayer as recorded in Acts 4. Pick up in Acts 4, 23. They've been released. The officials decide they can't do anything with them, so they threaten them, tell them, quit talking about Jesus or else. In 4, 23, when they were released, having been threatened, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Told us, quit talking about Jesus. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices to God and said, what comes out of their mouths? Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. See how immediately they come to God and proclaim His sovereignty to Him. They're being threatened not to talk about Jesus anymore. And when they go to God, what do they say to Him? Sovereign Lord, You created everything. You made everything. That's who we're talking to. Look at they continue in verse 25. You created everything who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. What are they doing in quoting Psalm 2? They are praying back Old Testament scripture about the sovereignty of God to God. Psalm 2 
is a messianic psalm about Jesus being set up as king by God amidst the opposing nations and peoples in the world. And this question by the apostles and their friends in Acts 4.25, why did the Gentiles rage and plot in vain? It might sound like when they're praying, they're praying a question to God. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? And that it's a cry for help. But I want you to see when we look at Acts, when we look at Psalm 2, it actually is part of their declaration that God is sovereign over all nations. It represents not their questioning of God's sovereignty, but their affirmation of God's sovereignty. This happens often in Scripture. Just let me just encourage you, when you see a New Testament quote of two or three or four verses, go back and read the whole chapter and just see what they're pulling up. Look at Acts, or go back with me in the Bible, in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. Just let your Bible fall open in the middle. It's probably going to land you on the book of Psalms chapter 2. And we read Psalm chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I want you to pick up in, with me in verse 7 through 12. And just see, this is ultimately talking about Jesus himself as king in his relation to the other nations, which Jesus ultimately bumped into at his crucifixion. As we see in this chapter, when the Gentiles conspired with Israel and the Romans, that was, to kill Jesus. Look at Psalm 2. I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. This is David writing this psalm looking forward to Christ. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Do you hear the declaration of God's sovereignty between Jesus and the nations? Verse 10, now therefore, O kings, there's a call to the nations, you be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. It might look like Jesus has been crucified. It might look like God is losing, but be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. So when they are praying, why do the nations rage? It's a question of silliness. Why do the nations continue to rage in foolishness when Jesus is the resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. They're not asking a position of weakness. Why, oh God, is this happening? We, we can't make sense of these happening. They're recalling the sovereignty of God in Scripture, warning all nations, that warns all nations to kiss the Son, to bow to Christ and take refuge in Him or find their own destruction. But persecution makes it look like Christians are, even as Jesus, weak, powerless, destined for total destruction. But the Christians in Acts 4, the first time they taste persecution, know better. They know better than to believe that narrative. 
They know that God has set up Christ as king. That David foresaw this time coming. They saw Christ set in the nations. They saw the nations raging against Christ. But they saw Psalm 2 showing and telling and proclaiming that the nations are the ones who ought to be warned. Because God is sovereign and Christ is His King. Their question quoted here, is actually a declaration of God's sovereignty from Psalm 2. And see how they apply what they know from Psalm 2 in verse 27. Acts chapter 4, verse 27. They pray Psalm 2, and then look how they apply it in chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate exactly what Psalm 2 said was going to happen truly in this city there were gathered together against your servant Jesus whom you anointed who? God anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand, your active participation in the history of the earth, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They looked at Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles and the people of Israel and said, yeah, that's what God's hand and His plan predestined to take place, the crucifixion of your own son. Notice... The church brings God's sovereignty to the fight. Where was the sovereignty of God most in view for them? Where was it most upheld for them so that they could trust and depend and love the sovereignty of God? It was in the very opposite place you might think to look. It was in the actual crucifixion of Jesus. They look and they say, Jesus was crucified. But how did he get there? God's hand and God's plan predestined that it would happen in a Psalm 2 way. The nations would rage against him and crucify him. But they recognize that was God's hand. God predestined this to happen according to his plan. And the application is, if God is sovereign over the crucifixion of Jesus... Like that for our salvation. Well, what should we be thinking about the suffering of ourselves for the name of Jesus? We can trust God because He is sovereign, even over the crucifixion of His own Son, to work out His own plan. I think when we get punched in the teeth, we can fall back on the plan that God has predestined, both in Christ. And for all the saints, in all time. Look at how they applied in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Look upon Psalm 2 continuing on in the nations toward Christ and His people. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The belief and the trust in the sovereignty of God led the church to pray that God would help them continue in boldness. Look what it says in verse 30. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. No church. 
church notice the healings and the signs and the wonders are not the source of seeking and praying and trusting for boldness in the disciples. It's not the signs and wonders. That's not the source of their boldness or the source of their prayer for boldness. Do not find yourself thinking, and if we had more signs and wonders, and that was going on more normally now, I'd, I'd be more bold. No, I don't, I don't know that you would. In fact, they're recognizing that they're in danger of not keeping up with what God is doing in His signs and wonders. Their prayer is that our boldness would keep up with the signs and wonders that God is doing. You continue to give us boldness to speak the word while you stretch out your hand to heal and you do signs and wonders through the name of your servant Jesus. Help us not be silent ourselves while you're doing those signs and wonders. We're concerned that the signs and wonders, the, the man being healed, the lame man being healed outside the temple, that that might continue, but that our witness might not. That would be a tragedy. That our witness would be silenced because we're not so bold. But they recognize the sovereignty of God and it leads them to pray that the sovereign God who oversaw and had His plan accomplished the crucifixion of Jesus, that now in this suffering, they would have boldness not to be silent. Not to be silent. Help us be bold to continue to speak your word. In all this, they put the sovereignty of God at the center of their understanding of suffering. And they put the sovereignty of God at the center of their prayer. And the hope for their faithfulness in boldness is rooted in the sovereignty of God. They are hoping that they can be faithful witnesses with the help of the sovereign God. See how God responds to their prayer in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathering together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Often people read Acts 4 and half of that one verse gets all the attention. The place where they were gathered was shaken. What's Acts 4 about? That's the building shaken chapter. It spurs pursuits in all parts of Christianity and even some false religion Pursuits for rooms to be shaken. God, shake this place like you did there. Let us have that kind of experience like we did there. Well, God may indeed shake rooms today. He may tear down buildings today. He may build up buildings. He may do whatever He pleases as we pray. But can we not see the emphasis us today is on their hope in the sovereignty of God? Yeah, God shook this place. He's not promised that He's going to do that every time the apostles or the disciples pray for boldness. But He did here. And it led to boldness. But see the, the flow of events. They were persecuted. They remembered the sovereignty of God from Scripture. They prayed it back to God and they asked for God to help them continue boldly speaking the name of Jesus. Right here in Acts 4, the first persecution of the church in the Holy Spirit. They throw themselves into prayer, depending, trusting, and loving the sovereignty of God, seeing His hands, seeing His plans accomplished in Christ Jesus. When you get punched in the mouth 
for preaching about Jesus. Metaphorically, maybe actually, I don't know. And you go into the corner between rounds of this boxing match. What's the prep talk? Well, what's the encouragement? The manager comes to put his arms around your shoulder, massages your shoulder, wipes the blood off your eyebrows. We're about to send you back in. What's the pep talk? Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea. The nations are raging. We're not surprised. When Jesus died on the cross, that was your hand. You anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Romans and the Gentiles and the Jews to see your son killed. Your predestined plan came true. Get back in the ring. Nothing happens in the ring that is outside God's sovereignty. No saint saved and washed by the blood of Jesus gets sent onto the ring and left alone. We are living and walking and enjoying God's sovereignty in the world, seen first in Christ and His crucifixion and then in our own making it to heaven. Three thoughts and applications quickly to close and make this land a little bit closer to home for us. First, let me encourage you to learn and love the sovereignty of God. Learn and love the sovereignty of God. If I asked you, Christian, if I asked you, church, if you could talk to me for a while about the sovereignty of God, could you fill some time? Would you go to some passages? Would it be a joy for you? Tell me about the sovereignty of God. How much time do you have? I would love to talk to you about the sovereignty of God. What does sovereign mean to you? Not only theologically, but personally. The sovereignty of God is not a doctrine reserved for theological debates in seminary basements. It's not a doctrine reserved for pastors. It's not a doctrine reserved for Bible teachers who love deep theology and intellectual exercises. We see in this passage, it's not a doctrine which is reserved for those people who are quote-unquote smart or educated people. Remember, the chief priest looked at these people and said, well, these guys are uneducated. You know? I mean, that's me. I'm from, I'm from East Texas. I'm just a good old boy. The sovereignty of God is actually simple and practical. Though they were quote-unquote uneducated people in the eyes of the chief priest, they knew Psalm 2. They knew God's sovereignty in the Scripture. It's simple. It's practical. You can spend night after night drowning in the depths of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. But you can also just recognize simply what they're praying in Acts 2. That when Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel conspired to kill Jesus, that God's hand was all over it. That God's plan was taking place. That's sovereignty. Learn it. And come to love it. If you've not yet come to learn the sovereignty of God or come to love the sovereignty of God, you're going to have a hard time being encouraged by the sovereignty of God when you get punched in the teeth. In the documentary called The American Gospel, Catherine Berger shares her experience with a life-threatening disease. After a year of almost, after a year of sickness and almost dying in the hospital and then losing her brother 
her husband's brother to suicide, and then their childhood home to a tornado, all in the same year. Catherine testifies, all of these things, instead of making us upset, they were bringing us together as a couple and as two people growing in their faith. I started to go to church with Russell, her husband. We started to read the Bible together. These things that I would have seen as an angry God or the world lashing out at me and my family, instead I saw ways that God was doing good. And I was eternally thankful for things that I would have hated before. That's what loving the sovereignty of God does. It changes our view of everything that God's doing, even persecution towards us. Loving the sovereignty of God, even though it brought about pain. The sovereignty of God changes everything. It's extremely practical, especially when you see it in Christ. God wielded His, sal- His sovereignty for your own salvation. What did God work together on that day when Christ died? The forgiveness of your sins. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's lovely, it's terrifying, it makes you tremble. But in the gospel, we know that it's good for us, His sovereignty. If God can be good to me in His sovereignty in Christ, then I trust He can be good to me in all of the sovereignty toward me, even the experience of persecution. Let that be our statement. Come to learn the sovereignty of God and love the sovereignty of God so that that's our refrain when we experience persecution and hate in the world. That our refrain is, God, whatever your hand and your predestined plan to take place, learn God's sovereignty and grow in loving God's sovereignty. One of the best ways to learn God's sovereignty, really the central way to learn God's sovereignty, is to read your Bible. Read your Bible. From cover to cover. Read large chunks of your Bible. You're going to see God's sovereignty over and over and over and over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation. And you'll be encouraged by it. If you don't have your nose in the book, you'll get discouraged and disillusioned and the world punches you in the nose. Read other pastors. Read authors talk about the sovereignty of God in history and theology. I've mentioned a few times, for example, John Piper's book on Providence. It's just a walk through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation about God's hand sovereignly working about His will from the beginning to the end. And it's not just a theological work. It's not just a theological adventure to study and think that way. It is encouraging to the soul to know that God is sovereign. Be encouraged. Let your heart swell at the sovereignty of God. That's number one. Learn and love the sovereignty of God. Second, reject the victim mentality and conspiracy theories as therapy. Reject the victim mentality and conspiracy theories as therapy. David Banson is a portfolio manager and a television commentator. I heard him. I don't know him. I don't know what all he, he believes. I don't know his whole world system. But I heard him interviewed in a podcast this week discussing America and finance and conspiracy theories and different things. They got into a discussion about who's really pulling the levers behind today's politics and finances in America. And David Banson made this comment about the theories that big bad corporations and politicians are secretly driving the world order. This is what he said. He said, I think it's ultimately therapeutic. People need to believe there's Someone who has their hands on all the levers. Bainson says, for me, my great awakening was as an adult 
during the financial crisis in 2008. I was a managing director at Morgan Stanley. And these people were sweating and shaking. And there were feds calling and screaming and changing their minds every five minutes. So the idea that there's Goldman Sachs and some evil masters of the universe thing going on in September 2008, for example, that was quickly revealed to me to be insane. He says the biggest way to reprogram a conspiracy theorist is to have them go to a board meeting of a large organization. <laughs> the point is in the episode essentially that there's always, we, we, we are so, we're being trained in media today to think there's some big bad guy to blame. And actually we are using that as therapy culturally. It makes me feel better if I can shift the blame and the responsibility from myself in the world for myself and my house, for myself and my life, I could shift it to some unknown, mysterious guy behind the curtain in Oz. And so, you know, wash my hands. I'm a victim here of this unknown. Let's see how the sovereignty of God both actually resolves all of our fears and frees us to continue to be bold. The God of the heavens and the earth is sovereign over all things. There is no bad guy. There's no Herod. There's no Pontius Pilate. There's no banker. The God is looking out there going, well, I just didn't see that coming. I don't know what to do with him. No, he's sovereign over all. He has worked for us in the suffering of Christ. He will work for us as we suffer for Christ. Lastly, Pray for boldness together. Pray for boldness together. Notice that when the persecution comes, the church comes together. When the persecution comes, the church comes together. They get together. Perhaps you've been punched in the teeth. You have felt the pain of being the only Christian in your family. You felt the pain of watching a lot of rainbow flags go up at work, but wondering what it's going to be like if you were to put up a passage of Scripture at work. You felt that pain and that isolation. What does the church do? They get together. They come together. They talk to one another. Brother, sister, that was rough. How are you doing? Let's pray about that together. Let's say together, out of our mouths as we pray, let's begin our prayer, Sovereign Lord. What a shift happens in the heart when we go from in the world on our own, feeling like the world is sovereign and our bosses and our family are sovereign, to getting together with Christians who know Psalm 2, who know Acts 4, and we say and we sing and we pray together, Sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. You oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. You are sovereign. This is the proverbial corner of the ring. Gather together weekly. Your plan ought to be, I'm gathering together weekly with the church. I'm going to get punched. I'm going to get stung. I'm going to get tripped. I'm going to get mocked and laughed at from week to week through my life as I tell people about Jesus. My plan is to keep gathering back together and keep singing and keep praying, Sovereign Lord, back to Him. 
This is the proverbial corner of the ring. We go out in the world, we get punched in the teeth, we come back in the corner of the ring, we massage each other's shoulders, we wipe the blood off of our eyebrows, and we pray for God to give us boldness to go back out there and keep taking hits while we tell people about Jesus, knowing that some of them may believe. Some of them might actually join from the other corner. They might become part of our corner. They might become Christians and follow Jesus. How are you doing today? What happened last week? What fears await in the week to come as you tell about Jesus? No doubt as you share, you may bring more hardship than less. More trouble, more sorrow. Learn and love the sovereignty of God. Depend on the sovereignty of God and just reject the temptation to give yourself to the mentality of victimhood and conspiracy theories. Trust the actual sovereignty of God. Get together with the church and your life groups. Get together in your one-on-one discipleship. Gather with the church. Let the first words out of our mouth as we pray, be sovereign, Lord. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord. You have made the heavens and the earth and the sea, all that is in them. You are sovereign over your own son's death for us. You anointed Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and those in Israel to see your son crucified. You are sovereign. We pray that you would help us respond to trials in the world, to persecution in the world with the hope and the love of your sovereignty. Help us do that. As we gather for discipleship this week, help us be encouraged and encourage one another by your sovereignty. Help us grow in understanding and learning your sovereignty. Beg us and call us and draw us to your word that we might grow in understanding your sovereignty. Help us recognize our own weakness is needing to grow in trusting and loving, knowing your sovereignty over men. Your hand and your plan will come to be. Father, we love you. And we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. First, before we leave today, we're going to take time to partake in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper 